Well, good morning, friends. It is good to be together. That was a nice little fellowship time there. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Father, we want to thank you for this facility. Lord, we want to thank you for the freedom in our nation. We want to thank you for calling us unto yourself and giving us a desire to gather with your people that we might lift up your name. Lord, we thank you for that work that you've done within us. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, which speaks truth and brings light into the darkness of this world and even the darkness of our own hearts. And so we pray that you would minister to us through your word. And we pray for the working of your Holy Spirit, Lord, to be stirring our hearts, Lord, uh, in response to your truth. And so, Lord, uh, we invite you to do your work in us as we sit under your word. Be with us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we are reminded that a lot of our youth are at the youth retreat, so pray for the leaders that they survive this last six hours or so of that time, but we're grateful. About 11 or so students went, um, junior high, high school students, so we're praying for those guys, certainly, and I'd encourage you to continue to do so. And then I'll just echo what Will said earlier. Um, we remind you and we extend that invite to you to be here this evening, uh, beginning at five for the potluck, six for the address. Potlucks are a whole lot better if people bring stuff. So please remember to bring something with you. And I always say, you know, I, like I give you that little like passive aggressive, I really like carrot cake, um, but we don't need 15 carrot cakes, all right? So coordinate amongst yourselves. Um, we need food and all that kind of stuff. So uh, we are in Acts chapter 20. Now you hear that and you're like, come on, man. You've been in this chapter four weeks now and you did the same set of verses two weeks in a row. Uh, in reality, we're going to pick up with the last couple of verses of this chapter. Uh, I don't even know if we've read them yet, um, but we certainly didn't discuss them. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to pick up in verse uh, 36 here. Remember, in our two previous Acts studies, now we had Easter in between, Palm Sunday in between, but in our two previous Acts studies, we looked at Paul's uh, gathering his meeting with the elders of Ephesus, and we broke that down into two studies, and the, the message that Paul shared with them, he informed them, this is almost certainly, uh, the Lord's been telling me, the last time I'm going to see you, and so I want to make sure you understand these things, uh, and we saw that. Uh, the end of Acts 20 are the final words of the Apostle Paul for that group of people. Now, verse 36, where we basically left off, is where we're picking up today. So watch, it says this. Now, when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all of them. They embraced Paul and they kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to his ship. And remember, Paul is going to leave that region of the world. He's going to make his way back to Jerusalem. And eventually, the plan, one might think, is from Jerusalem, go back to his home in Syria, which was Antioch at that time. But he's going to be leaving the area of Asia Minor. He's going to leave the area of Europe and all of those cities that surround that body of water there. And he sa says to them, this is it. I won't see you anymore. And you can imagine. They're, they're sad. Uh, they're heartbroken. Uh, they love Paul, and he loves them. Now, chapter 21 continues, and it says, Now, when he had parted from them, and he set sail, 
we uh, came by a straight course to cause. Notice that now, uh, the word we there. Uh, the author of the book is Luke, which means now Luke has joined back up with the Apostle Paul, is traveling with them again. So there's sometimes in the book we see words like we and us, and there's other times he and him. Uh, so in this case, Luke is back with the Apostle Paul. It said, we came by straight course to Kaz and next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and we set sail. So where we are here now in Acts chapter 21, verse 1, really kind of picks up where chapter 20, verses 13, 14, and 15 ended. And so remember in those verses, you can kind of peek at it if you want to, but in those verses, Paul was sort of hopscotching to all of these little cities interacting with the believers in those little cities, not so much by design, but just by opportunity. I'm here, let's see if we can find those believers. Met with them, talked with them, went on to the next city. Finally, he gets to that city of Miletus, and he calls for the Ephesian elders to come to him. 35 miles away, but I want you guys to come here, because God's been working on my heart some things. He's made it pretty clear to me, I'm never coming back this way again, and I, I need to share some things with you. And those guys do that. Now, Paul here in chapter 21, he picks up port city to port city to port city. And we have a little bit of a map here. It gives you an idea. Uh, those cities is where he was in Acts chapter 20. Do we have another map after this? I forget. Throw that one. Okay. And then you see the new dots that were added there. Go back to the old one for a second. Now the new one. See the dots that kind of popped up there? You may have missed them. That's these new city dots that are popping up. So he's visiting them. This isn't so much by Paul's design. This is much like a, a bus, you know, a city bus. It, it stops where it's going to stop. And if you're on it, you're stopping there too. And Paul's on this ship that is eventually going to make its way all the way across that, uh, that body of water there, the Mediterranean. Down in the bottom right corner, you see the word Palestine. That's where he's headed, down to Israel, down to Jerusalem. And so he's stopping at all these different places. He's connecting with whom he's going to connect with. The last place that he is going to go, it says in verse 2, uh, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. Now, Phoenicia was a small, narrow strip of land located just north of Israel on the Mediterranean coast. All right, I'm not going to put a map up there. You have an idea of roughly where Israel is. Phoenicia is a little body of land uh, or like a nation that was located there. And so the point of that verse is to say when Paul finally found a large ship that was going to sail all the way across the Mediterranean to Phoenicia, that's the ship that he boarded. Verse 3 continues, Now when he had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. Tyre is another key city of that region located right near where Phoenicia is. Verse 4, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And when our days there were ended, we departed. We went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned back home. I think we have one more nice little map here. My little red arrow, no red arrow? That didn't make it? No, oh, well. Well, anyway, the black dot. 
there was a there was a really nice red arrow that didn't that didn't make it on this uh, little journey here. So, at Tyre, you'll see there it says they're going to spend a week. That's to unload the cargo and all that. My wife and I we were traveling through Siberia when we were young people. Uh, we were. Um, visiting youth prisons, which is kind of ironic because now I go and visit prisons a lot, and I had no idea back then. Um, and so we were on a train. Siberia is basically nothing and then a town or city, and then nothing for 17 hours of train ride and then another little town or city. And so we're on these trains, and we're just traveling, 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 going nowhere, and then all of a sudden we stop at a particular place, and normally... It was like you get two minutes at this place. So if you want a banana, get out there and get the babushka lady to get some bread, get a banana or something like that. But don't miss the train because they ain't waiting for you. And so I was like scared to death, on the, like I was going to miss the train in Siberia. Um, but then one time they said, you're going to have a little time here. Why are we going to have a little time here? We were there for 12 hours because the conductor had a break. He had a break you know, for 12 hours. And so we're like, what are we going to do here in Siberia for 12 hours or whatever? That's what I was reminded of here. Paul's been traveling by boat from this city to that city to this one, all the way across the Mediterranean. Seven-day seven break. Enjoy. What am I going to do here for seven days? And so Paul is in this city here of Tyre now for a period of seven days. It's sort of an unexpected break uh, for him. And notice what he does with his unexpected free time. And I think you can tell a lot about a person by what they do with two things. Their free time and so to speak, their free money. Like when they have a little bit of extra cash, what do they do with it? And when they have a little bit of extra time, what do they do with it? There used to be an old expression that said something like this, show me your checkbook and I'll tell you what's important to you in life. Well, that, that's a little bit of a dated expression because most people don't have checkbooks uh, anymore. But I think we might be able to update for in our day, show me your calendar app and I'll show you what is important in, in your life. Here is the Apostle Paul with a potentially uh, unexpected week off in a city primarily located on the Mediterranean coast. And how does he spend his free time? How would you spend your free time? He spends his free time seeking out the brethren. Look what it says in verse 4. Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. So again, how might you have looked to spend your free time in a coastal city of the Mediterranean Sea. I suspect some of you spa days. Any spa day people here? My wife, all right, and Tony, the two of you. All right, that should be fun for you. Some of you, Josh, surfing. Many of us sunning ourselves at the beach. Some of you more intellectual people, sightseeing and seeing the historical sites and all of that sort of stuff. But how would you have spent your free time? What Paul wanted to do was spend his days fellowshipping with others so that he could encourage them and so that he would be encouraged by them. And the word that is used there where it says, and having sought out the disciples, the word that is used there for sought out is a word which means to do so with great purpose and intent. You know, I don't know if you saw all these videos of kids on doing Easter egg hunts of late, you know, a couple of days, like a couple of weeks ago, and those kids are seeking out those Easter eggs. They're doing so with great purpose and with intent. And that's how Paul sought out fellowship in this new community. He doesn't necessarily know these people. We don't read anywhere in the book of Acts about a church in Tyre, and yet there is one because there's brethren there. 
And so Paul doesn't necessarily know them, but he wants to find them. And he goes out of his way and he seeks them. So this isn't a story where Paul sort of accidentally is going down a street and he hears some, some singing and it sounds like some worship songs he's familiar with and let's go check this place out. Paul went looking for the opportunity to fellowship with others. He put all of his effort into finding that local body of believers. And again, it says a lot about a person or it tells you a lot about a person what they do with their free time. Now, I'm not saying you can never have a spa day. Amen? I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you can't sit lazily on a beach from time to time. All I'm pointing out is simply this, is that Paul was drawn to fellowship with others. Because he had to fellowship with them, it's Sunday and I better go fellowship with them, but because he wanted to fellowship with them. And when I look at my own life, I notice that my desire for fellowship with other believers is directly proportionate with where I'm at spiritually. And so if I'm in a good place spiritually and I'm in a good place in my relationship with the Lord, nothing is really hindering it, I'm hungry for fellowshipping with others that are in a similar place. You see where I'm going with that? Do you understand what I'm saying here? And so it can serve as an indicator in my life. When I'm tired of you people, <laughs> I'm just kidding, but where I don't want to be around other believers or I'm not interested in being other believers or I'm more interested in talking about politics or sports or I'm trying to think of a lady example, flowers or something like that, whatever it might be. You know, if that's what's driving me, that should be an indicator. And indicators are important in our walks with the Lord, where we just sort of pull back, we have that conversation with the Lord, say, Lord, something seems off in me. Would you put your finger on it? And God's faithful, he's good. And the Holy Spirit begins to minister and he begins to draw you. And so Paul is a man that was drawn to fellowship with others. I just want to encourage you in that fellowship is really, really important. I overheard a conversation that was taking place in the office this week about sort of key spiritual disciplines. You know, what would you say are the key spiritual disciplines? And I, I had stuff to do, so I wasn't really paying attention, nor did they invite me into the conversation. So I was just sort of eavesdropping. And, you know, things were talked about, and I was beginning to think how I would answer it and, you know, the personal study of the word. Fellowship with other people, prayer, um, you know, giving of myself, my time, my resources, my abilities. And I was beginning to think through those things. Fellowship is one of those key spiritual disciplines that is important for every one of us that are a follower of Jesus Christ. Because what fellowship is, it's a time for us to mutually encourage one another in our relationship with Christ and in our walks with Christ. You can do this is what happens during times of fellowship. And so maybe for some of us, some of us are newer believers here. Maybe we've never discovered the importance and the benefit of fellowship in your life. I want to encourage you of how important it is, and I want to encourage you to take advantage of one of the many opportunities that our fellowship here offers for you to have fellowship with others. And if you don't know what they are, come see me. And I'll point you in certain directions. I'll find out what's of interest to you in groups that might work with your schedule. But I imagine a lot of us here, we know the importance of it. But maybe sometimes for whatever reason, we get away from it. Last week when I closed out our service, I read that letter of Jesus in the book of Revelation. Remember, Jesus wrote a number of letters to churches 
uh, and they're recorded for us in chapter 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. I read the one that was written to the Ephesians. About 30 years, 25 years after the material that we had been studying, and I, I just thought it would be helpful, 25 years later, what does Jesus have to say to that same church that Paul was talking to 25 years earlier? And in that letter, maybe you remember, maybe you caught it, maybe you, weren't, you were thinking about going to get lunch and weren't paying attention, but this is what Jesus said there. He says, remember from where you have fallen and do the works you did at first. And I think that's an appropriate word. If you at one point recognize the importance of, and maybe we're even desperate for fellowship, but maybe you've gotten away with that, uh, from that as life has gotten busy, well then let those words speak to your heart. Remember from where you have fallen and do the works you did at first. Again, the importance of fellowship. Now there's a second thing that catches my attention in those few verses that we read earlier, and I, I briefly mentioned this, and that's mention of the city of Tyre, and that there are believers in the city of Tyre. Again, no mention of Tyre in the book of Acts, no mention of missionary activity there, this guy went there, or these people went there and did that, no mention of those things. And so that's a reminder to us that in this 28-chapter book of the book of Acts, it doesn't tell us every event that occurred in the first 25 or 30 years of the church. There's select events that it speaks of. It also speaks to this idea that God worked, God's spirit worked in that region of the world even outside of what Paul was doing and outside of what Peter was doing and outside of what Philip was doing, God was at work. And he continues to do that in our day, not just through a few select individuals, but his body, his church. And as his church goes into different parts of the world, they bring the Holy Spirit with them and the Holy Spirit works in those parts of the world. That makes sense? All right. And so Paul seeks out these believers. Now notice what these believers say to him. It's in verse 4. Look down there again. And so having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now it's not clearly stated here, but I, I think it's pretty safe to conclude that there were some believers in that community that were prophesying to the Apostle Paul of the dangers that awaited him in Jerusalem. Now that was not new information for the Apostle Paul. You remember that the map I showed you a moment ago with the hopscotching around and the little different colored dots. Paul said this about his time in all those little dots. Verse 22 of chapter 20, he said, Now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except this, that the Spirit testifies to me in every city, every one of those cities I hopscotch to, the Spirit testifies to me that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And Paul doesn't tell us how the Spirit testified to him. If it was during his prayer time, God just began to speak to his heart, or it's as he's meeting with believers in each of those cities, somebody said, hey, Paul, you know, I think I have a word for you from the Lord. One way or the other, the Holy Spirit was ministering to Paul and telling him that in Jerusalem, prison and afflictions awaited him. And so here now, he is again in Tyre, and these believers are saying to him uh, the same thing. And Paul responds. So it says in verse 5, Now when our days there were ended, we departed, we went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, they accompanied us until we were outside the city, 
It talks about how they knelt down and they prayed. But where did Paul go? To Jerusalem. That's where he's headed off to. And so they're saying to him, God told me that when you go to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest you, they're going to put you in prison, they're going to afflict you, beat you, all those kinds of stuff. And Paul goes there anyway. Now, the question that we might want to raise is, is Paul being disobedient? Should Paul have not gone to Jerusalem? Was God's Holy Spirit speaking to these other brothers and sisters in the faith to tell Paul, don't go. It's not going to be good. Your ministry is going to be done because they're going to eventually kill you in this process. Paul, you can't go there. You've got to go somewhere else. But Paul goes anyway. And so the question is raised as to whether Paul was disobedient to what the Spirit was trying to communicate to him. And there are many commentators that wrestle over this. Some say, yep, he sure was. He shouldn't have gone. That's why the Holy Spirit kept telling him not to go. One of my favorite commentators on the book of Acts is a fellow by the name of James Montgomery Boyce. Some of you know him. Some of you are familiar. Down in Philly 50 years ago uh, was there. And James Montgomery Boyce entitled his chapter, commenting on this chapter in the book of Acts, he entitled it, When Good Men Fail. And you can conclude, his conclusion was that the Apostle Paul wasn't listening to the Holy Spirit who was trying to get him not to go to Jerusalem. That's Boyce's opinion. That's not my opinion, but there are, there are great Bible commentators that think Paul was being disobedient, and then there are plenty of others that don't think Paul was being disobedient. That's the opinion that I am of. And so the question then is, when it says in verse 4, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem, well, that seems pretty clear. The Holy Spirit was trying to say not to go to Jerusalem. And so for people that hold the opinion that I hold, that's a problem. My understanding of that phrase would be this, that there was a specific warning from the Holy Spirit that difficulties and trials awaited the Apostle Paul in Jerusalem. That was the specific thing that came through the Spirit but then the information about don't go to Jerusalem, that was an interpretation by these believers of what the Holy Spirit was saying, but that that was an incorrect interpretation. Did I thoroughly, I feel like I need a blackboard. Did I confuse everyone? All right, I hope not. And so the specific warning was not meant to protect Paul from the imprisonment and the afflictions, but rather to prepare Paul for the imprisonment and the afflictions that were coming against him. And so despite the heartfelt pleas of these Christians and this group of believers here, uh, from these Christians in this group here entire, Paul and his friends, they continue on. And so they, they kneel down, they pray with these guys, a lot more tears again, and Paul heads down to Jerusalem. The passage goes on in verse 7. It says, now when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers, and we stayed with them for a day. On the next day we departed, we came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt, presumably off his body, and he bound his own feet and hands, and he says, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. 
And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since Paul would not be persuaded, we ceased urging him and said, well then, let the will of the Lord be done. So they were in Tyre. About 25 miles south of Tyre is this city, Ptolemy. And so again, the ship goes to that next particular city. Paul's going to be there only about a day this time. And what does he do? Seeks out fellowship again, because it was important to him. Not because he had to, but because he wanted to. He gathers with the believers in that city. I imagine Paul must have been so delighted to kind of pull back, think about the last two months or so, three months as he's been on these ships so often during that time, going from city to city to city to city. Maybe, I'm going to guess a number just now, 10 different cities and finding believers in every one of those cities. That must have delighted the Apostle Paul. God's work is spreading. And it's in all of these cities and every one of those communities is being impacted by the gospel. Paul must have been delighted because everywhere he went, he found a Christian community that was waiting to welcome him. William Barclay said this, the man who is in the family of the church has friends all over the world. And some of you know that. I remember we took a mission group uh, to uh, Ensenada, Mexico, just a little bit south of Tijuana. A lot of people know Tijuana. And our plan was to get up early on Sunday morning, drive back to the United States, get a plane in San Diego, and fly back here uh, to New Jersey. And one of the fellows that was from California, he said, when are you, when's your flight? I said, it's about 10 a.m., so we're going to leave real early. It's only about an hour drive. He said, that sounds like a bad idea. I said, why would that be a bad idea? And he said, you never know how long you're going to be at the border. You could be at the border five hours. You could be there for 20 minutes. You never know. And there's a good chance you're going to miss your plane. I said, oh, no. Well, I don't know if, Barb, you were on that trip. I didn't have another dollar. <laughs> we spent all our money. And thank God for Barb because she brought us to a grocery store. My plan was there was a taco guy across the street. Tacos for everybody for the entire week. Barb thought that was a bad idea, so we got like actual food for the, for the kids. Uh, so anyway, okay, we got to go back to San Diego. I don't have any money. Where are we going to stay? And he says, I'll make some calls for you. And so he did. He called a church there, and they found this lady, and she was willing to put, put up like 14 of us in her little house. Uh, that night, the, there was this church. They, they have a picnic every Saturday night, and they said, why don't you come to the picnic? And I was like, oh, wait, you know, that's for you guys. No, we can't come and eat your food. Okay, we'll be there. You know, this kind of thing. And so it was just great. And it was just this sweet little lesson for me, for the young people that we were with, that God's church is a lot bigger than the one here in Ewing Township. It's scattered all about and how sweet fellowship is and how uh, enjoyable it can be. And so anywhere you go, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've got family members that are scattered abroad. One of my favorite things about doing mission trips is discovering that and experiencing that. And so Paul stays there now in Ptolemy just for a day. And then it goes on and it says that he departs to the next port. Notice here in verse 8, the next day we departed, we came to Caesarea. Now this is going to be the place where Paul kind of finally gets off this ship. He'd been getting off and on, off and on. But here is where he's going to leave. He's going to get off. And what does he do? 
He goes, finds brothers and sisters to fellowship with. Specifically, it says in verse 8, a fellow by the name of Philip. Philip the evangelist and his family. Talks about his four daughters there. Now, we've met Philip before in our study of the book of Acts. Philip, you may recall, in Acts chapter 6, he was one of the seven deacons that were selected to serve the meals to the widows of the congregation. You may recall it told us there that the requirement of those deacons is that they be men of good repute, full of the spirit, and full of wisdom. And so Philip here is a man, we can say, since he was chosen, a man of good reputation, full of the spirit, and full of wisdom. We saw in Acts chapter 8 that it was Philip that was evangelizing the people of Samaria. Now remember, Samaria is like smack dab in the middle of Israel. But Samaria and the Israelites, the Samaritans and the Israelites, they didn't didn't quite like jail. The Samaritans were what, in a derogatory way, they called half-breeds. They were half-Jews, but they, when when Israel had been conquered by some of the other nations, they married the people of those other nations. They began to kind of practice the religion of those other nations and kind of morph their Judaism into something that wasn't pure. And so the, the Jewish people didn't like the Samaritan people. Samaritan people, but I didn't like the Jewish people. But Philip went there, and he told them about Jesus. And we see that in Acts chapter 8. We learned Philip is the fellow that connected with the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember, the Ethiopian eunuch from Africa had come to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. Maybe he picked up a Bible or something while he was there, and as he was driving home, he was reading it. He was doing so out loud, And Philip came running alongside of the chariot. Weird story, Acts chapter 8. Came running alongside of the story, uh, the chariot. And he says, do you understand what you're reading? I imagine he was out of breath. uh, And the guy's like, well, how could I unless somebody can explain it to me? I'm glad you asked, he said. I can explain it to you. Stop the carriage. Come on up in. And he explains to him Isaiah chapter 53. What a sweet passage. If you want to talk to somebody about the sacrifice of Jesus... That's like the best passage to do so from the Old Testament. And so Philip is the fellow that did that. And then finally, at the end of Acts chapter 8, verse 40, it tells us that Philip, after finding himself at Azotus, passed through, uh, he passed through, as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So he's down in, in kind of like southern Israel and just, traveling through and every city he went to he preached the gospel and then he moved on to the next city until eventually he came to the city of Caesarea which is where we find him here now in Acts chapter 21 he settled there he resided there he met a nice lady they got married and they had some kids at least four daughters it tells us in verse 9 he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied now that word unmarried daughter refers specifically to a daughter of marriageable age. So we're not talking about he had four little girls that ran around. These are teenagers and above, young women, not yet married, which is in and of itself interesting. But the more important thing that we see here is that each of these four young ladies, that they were gifted in the area of prophecy, that they were able to prophesy. Luke points that out to us, Luke being the author of the book that they had the gift of prophecy. Now, the gift of prophecy is this. It's the supernatural ability to either foretell, predict, or foretell the word of God. And so again, by foretell, what we mean is to predict something is going to happen before it actually happens. 
And many times in the Old Testament, that's the type of prophecy we see. We see a prophet come on the scene and predict an event is going to occur before it actually occurs. That is not the only way it's used in the Old Testament. And in fact, it's not the primary way the word prophecy is used in the Old Testament. Again, predicting the future. The other means of prophecy or the other type of prophecy that we see, and about two-thirds of the time in the Old Testament, it's this, and most of the time in the New Testament, it's this, it's forth-telling the Word of God. So not so much pro, uh, predicting a future event, but proclaiming God's Word, or forth-telling God's Word. And what that means simply is this, authoritatively speaking the word of God. Many times when we gather in this particular way, that's what we're doing. We're forth telling God's word, authoritatively speaking. This is what the scripture says. So these young ladies, they had this gift of prophecy. We're not told specifically if it was one form or the other, but by the Holy Spirit, it's clear they received messages from the Lord that they were to give to others or convey to others. Now, what I find interesting here is this. In light of all of this, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. These ladies, prophets, mention nothing about that to Paul. You catch that? You see that? And so that seems odd to me. And yet it's a reminder to us that the Holy Spirit can choose who he wants to reveal, what he wants to reveal, who he wants to use in what circumstances, and who he doesn't want to use in certain circumstances. Many times a person that might have you know, this gift of prophecy or some other gift, they might come in, I'm the official prophet here. That's not what these young ladies are about. And so for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit revealed to a lot of other people what was ahead for Paul, but it doesn't seem he revealed it to these young ladies, despite the fact that they're specifically called prophetesses. Verse 10 goes on, now while we were staying there for many days, another prophet, this guy named, this man named Agabus, he comes down from Judea. Jerusalem is in Judea. That's you know, Israel we oftentimes think of. And like Philip, we were introduced to Agabus in other places in the scripture. Agabus we learned about in Acts chapter 11. He is the fella that God revealed that a great famine was about to come over the land and much of all the earth. And that the people should thus begin to prepare for that famine. That was Agabus. And so he has the gift of prophecy. Specifically, he was able to foretell that particular event. Here now, he's going to predict another event. Look at verse 11. He, he throws a little dramatic flair in there, kind of like an Old Testament prophet. And so verse 11 says, coming to us, he took Paul's belt. I can just picture the scene, reaching around Paul, doing his little belt or whatever. It's probably a rope. And so he comes to Paul's belt, and he binds his own feet, ties himself up like he's handcuffed or something like that, and he says, thus says the Holy Spirit, the owner of this belt will be bound in the same fashion in Jerusalem or something to that effect. He acts out his message to Paul about the danger that is awaiting him. And Paul, again, he kind of ignores that message. Now, that might, I know that might be a strong word. He he doesn't let it impact where he is going. He ignores the warnings. This time, though, it's becoming a little hard to do so. The guy's acting it out. I'm going to need that belt back, you know, this kind of stuff. Now, notice also it says in verse 12, now, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Again, we, who's included? Luke. 
you know, Luke, I get it. They don't understand. But you're like, come on, you should understand. But Luke is like, you know what? We keep getting the same message. Maybe Paul's the one missing the point here. And so Luke gets involved and urges him, as well as the others, you can't go to Jerusalem, Paul. And yet uh, Paul remains steadfast, knowing that God was preparing him for Jerusalem, not protecting him from Jerusalem. And so Paul continues on. He says to them, look, guys, you're breaking my heart. You know, the crying, all that. I know you love me. I know you care about me. But I'm, he says, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to be imprisoned in Jerusalem if that's what's going to happen. I'm ready even to die in Jerusalem if that is going to happen. And so stop breaking my heart and let's move on, he says. Now, I think this is important. Paul isn't necessarily being reckless. Paul isn't choosing to suffer. Oh, this will be the perfect end of my book. You know, I'll suffer, I'll be a martyr, it'll sell millions of copies or something like that. Paul's not looking to suffer. What Paul is looking to do is submit himself to the will of the Lord, which might include suffering. You see the big difference there? And so Paul is willing to be careful in whatever circumstances he needs to be careful in, but when it's God's will for him to go and do something, if suffering ends up being a part of it, well, then that's just the way it is, because I must obey the Lord. He was ready, as he says, to die for Jesus. He didn't necessarily want to die for Jesus, but he was willing to if that was what was required of him. And he has said on two prior occasions, Acts 20, 22 is an example of this, that he was bound in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. I got to do what God is leading me to do. And so his well-meaning friends, they just needed to stop. Now, I think this is helpful for us because there are some times where, as believers, we think the Lord is telling us something and our good buddy, who's a good believer as well, thinks the Lord is telling them something different about that same thing, right? Can you see where I'm at in the scenario that uh, I'm using here? And there comes a time where we speak into their lives. This is what I think. That's why I think it's important that we don't say, God told me this, and you need to listen to it. And, and rather approach it from a perspective, of course, if the scripture says it, the scripture says it. But in these instances where we get this sense that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us, I think it's important in those instances to say, hey, look, in humility, say, look, this is what I think the Lord has been saying. This is how I feel he's impressing upon my heart these things. But then entrust the person to go before the Lord themselves and to hear from the Lord themselves. And so the, the, his friends here who love him, care for him, want the best for him, have to eventually pull back and say, well, you know what? Let the Lord's will be done. Does that make sense? That's a challenging thing for us as believers. And yet, it's a good example of it here. And that's what they do. They leave the decision to the Apostle Paul. Verse 15 goes on. And then, by the way, when Paul does get arrested, to not say, see, I told you. <laughs> Don't do that either. That's rude. All right, verse 15. After these days we got ready, we went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea, they went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. And so I don't know how many people Paul had with him, five, six, seven people that were with him. This fellow Nason opens up his door, come stay with me. Now, historians tell us that the date of these events is probably around the year 57 A.D., that Paul comes to Jerusalem in this particular way, 57 A.D. 
I bring that up because it tells us about this fellow Nason that he was one of the early disciples of Jerusalem, probably going back to the day of or right around the day of Pentecost, which is where the book of Acts begins. Remember Acts chapter 2. That event occurs around the year 30 AD. And so here we are in 57 AD. That particular event uh, was 30 AD. That's 25, 26, 27 years earlier that this fellow Nason had become a believer. Here's my point. This guy Nason's been in the Lord for a long period of time. And yet, what do we see about him here? He is still serving others. And I think this is important is because when we're young in the faith, we have a lot of energy, we have a lot of enthusiasm, we have a lot of excitement. But then as we begin to get a little bit older in the faith, I don't feel like doing that anymore. I don't feel like opening my house to seven people to come in and have to feed them and the mess that they're going to make. And we leave that many times to the young people. Sadly, sadly, time and age, those kinds of things, too often has the effect of doling our enthusiasm. I don't want that to be said of me. And I hope it's not said of any of us as well. And I think that's just this unspoken, subtle, exhortation from this man who had been in the, the Lord almost 30 years, continuing to give of himself on behalf of other people. Verse 17, now when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly, Christian brothers. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related uh, one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. So just like we saw in the other cities, Paul would meet with the believers. Now in those other cities, it seems that the gathering together with those other believers was strictly for fellowship. He wanted to find other believers, you know, teaching might happen and all of that. Here in Jerusalem, it seems it was more for the purpose of giving an official report. You guys sent me out from here uh, three, four years earlier and now I want to come back and I want to let you know what's going on and what happened uh, in those places. He's giving sort of that mission report. It says in verse 19, one by one, he relates to them the things that God had done. Notice that. He relates to them the things that God had done. Not that I had done. Not that Paul had done. But what the Lord had done through his ministry. So important. And no doubt we've read the stories. No doubt he spoke to them about his ministry in Ephesus and the time he spent there. He probably talked to him about the big riot. Remember at the, the amphitheater and everybody was freaking out, the thousands of people that were there, and Paul, let me go down, but you know, everyone says, you can't go there, are you crazy? And he probably told them that whole story that we read about. He probably told them about their time that he went out to uh, Europe and how he journeyed through Macedonia and how he journeyed through Greece and how churches were planted and how he ministered to them. I imagine he told them about the time Eutychus fell asleep during service, fell out the window and died. And everybody was bummed, but how Paul went down and prayed and he was brought back to life. I suspect that made it into the stories that he shared with them. But in all of those things, the ministry that God had done, not Paul had done. And it's so important because I think we can lose track of it. And it becomes all about us and our getting the glory and people telling stories about us. Did you hear Paul raise somebody from the dead? Nobody said that when they left this meeting. Did you hear what God did? How God raised that kid back to life? 
And a lot of that comes from how we tell the stories and how we communicate with other people. And so Paul very, very carefully points them to what God was doing. One by one, it says, he related the stories of what was going down. It was a missionary report. A lot of us support missionaries. Our church supports missionaries. And maybe we get a, an email from them every now and again, or we get a letter from them, or they send us a video, whatever. We have a report of what God is doing in that little portion of the world. That's what Paul is doing. And look at the result in verse 20. It says, now when they, that's James, kind of the head of that church there, probably the brother of Jesus, um, not James and John, he died. This is probably the brother of Jesus, the head of the church there in Jerusalem at that time. It says, when they, James and the elders, when they heard it, they glorified God. This news of what God was doing in some faraway part of the world, who they didn't really even know these people, it brought great joy to each of their hearts and drove them to the place where they gave glory to the Lord. They glorified God for what he had done. And God was at work. There's one thing that strikes me as I consider these interactions. There's no, this isn't like real profound material, is it? Not really. I mean, it's the Bible. And, and so in that regard, but it's just sort of details of how they went from this place to that place. And, and I've tried to draw your attention you know, to some important things and things like that. But the thing that really strikes me is the way these people had a relationship with the Lord. And so all these believers in all these little towns had a prayer life. And in that prayer life, God spoke into their hearts. And he gave them the message for the Apostle Paul. These guys here, they had the working of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And the, the Holy Spirit united them. So when they came to certain cities, they longed for fellowship with other believers. And they enjoyed that fellowship with other believers. The Apostle Paul, hearing these messages from all of these people, yet having such a relationship with the Lord that he knew what God would have him to do, and he could go forward uh, in a steadfast manner, as it says, these folks had a vibrant relationship with God. And that's what God continues to desire for every one of us is to have a vibrant relationship with him. That takes nurturing. It takes time. It takes sitting with him, communicating with him, letting him communicate with you. And so maybe you've been neglecting your personal relationship with God. You still come to church. Maybe you still read your Bible every single day. Maybe you still go to your home group every week or every other week, but you've been neglecting your personal intimate relationship with God. Stop doing that. Start again what you used to do when you first came to know the Lord and refresh your relationship with him. Now, there may be some of us here, I don't have a relationship with God. I have no idea what you're talking about when you say these people prayed and God spoke to their hearts. That may be because you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. You're not yet a believer. And the Bible is very, very clear that sin separates us from God. It hinders our ability to have a relationship with God. And the Bible is also very clear. God so loved the world that he wanted to deal with that sin problem. And he did that at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so if you have no idea what it means to have a relationship with Christ, it begins at the cross of Jesus Christ. Recognizing your sin separates you from God. Recognizing that the cross was the payment for your sin, so that that blood of Jesus Christ, as we sang in one of our first songs, washes over you, cleanses you, 
and brings you into relationship with God. If you don't yet know Jesus Christ, before we leave today, talk with the person that brought you. Come up front, maybe the, the two or three of you come up front, talk with one of our prayer counselors, and they'll explain it to you, they'll answer your questions, and they'll help you get started in a relationship with Christ. Amen, friends? Let's pray together. And Lord, even as, as I say that, Lord, I can do so with great confidence because these aren't our words. This isn't sort of a, a scheme that we or somebody smarter than us devised. This is what your word tells us. These are the promises of God that speak into this. And so we can confidently proclaim that. That though all of us are sinners, we can all be brought into right relationship with you because of the work of your son. And so even now, I pray for those that are with us that don't yet know that reality. Lord, would you open up their hearts too? Would you give them the faith to trust and to believe your truth on these matters? Lord, for all of us here that are Christians, we've been believers maybe a long time. We want to be in a vibrant, sweet relationship with you. That's why you saved us, to bring us into relationship with you eternally, certainly. But eternity begins now here on the earth. And so maybe we've drifted a bit. Maybe we've gotten away from the sweetness of fellowship we once enjoyed with you. Maybe we've become just about tasks and doing things, and looking right on the outside. But Lord, you invite us to enter in, to enter into your presence. And we want to do that, Lord. We don't want to miss all that you have for us. We don't want to miss the sweetness of fellowship that we can enjoy with you. And so, Lord, speak to our hearts, those of us that believe, speak to our hearts, about where we might have drifted away. And call us back to yourself, we ask in Jesus' name.